Let's go to space. I'm AK5A, and welcome to the inaugural episode. Today I'm talking with my co-host and co-creator Michael Thomas about speculation, the process in the philosophical context, its benefits to inquiry, and the general underlying zeitgeist of the podcast. Mike is a PhD candidate at the University of Chicago and the John U. Neff Committee on Social Thought. He starts us off with a great description of the show. From what I understand about the podcast, one of the focuses you have is this idea of problematizing situations, of finding things that we take for granted are as known and realizing that that sort of understanding of these things is settled, that kind of dogmatic certainty is really a matter of simplifying the problem and that there's an advantage to be had by making the problem more complex or making it more specific to determine new avenues for future work and to sort of figure out where our dogmatic certainty is actually flawed rather than completing the system. Those concerns in mind, this idea of speculation, would be a really important topic. The issue with speculation, and I approach this from within the field of philosophy, is the idea that philosophical systems, and when you argue with philosophers, you're arguing usually on the level of how well this system seems to capture reality. And the argument takes place then on the level of the propositions that the system holds to be true, what its premises are, and then sort of towards the conclusion. So with a system like Descartes, you're still having arguments about the dualism between mind and body, whether or not one's mental life and one's physical life are distinct substances, meaning completely distinct entities that happen to just intersect in the body thanks to the intervention of the pineal gland, or if there's a more robust way to describe experience that's captured in some other form of thought. Um, so this has taken off recently in philosophy as a response... I think less to what's being done in Anglo-American philosophy and analytic philosophy in general and more in continental philosophy, which is located in the continent of Europe, primarily done in uh, France and Germany, where they're reacting against a lot of the critical philosophy that was done in deconstruction, postmodernism and post-structuralism. And you're familiar with these, that... Within these systems, the idea is that once you realize that knowledge is ultimately something that's constructed, right, that scientific facts that we hold to be self-evident are the results of observations and procedures in laboratories that give us concrete ways of understanding things, that that human construction somehow delegitimizes knowledge. While it does sort of take away from our normal concept of objectivity in that case, where speculative philosophy sort of disagrees with this kind of critical deconstruction is in the idea that because facts are constructed that ultimately like makes them valueless so the world is left open to interpretation in a fully kind of relativist way so there's no actual statements you could make about reality that are firm and can be founded um what speculative philosophy wants to do is to start from this premise that the facts are constructed and develop a new method of philosophizing that takes that into account. Um, so the way this has been phrased with in one of the big movements in speculative philosophy, object-oriented ontology, is they reject the idea of correlationism, um, which they define as systems of thinking that take 
Kant's first critique as a central premise. And the key part of the critique being that there's an impassable gap between the noumenal realm, or the realm of what actual experience in the world is, and the phenomenal realm, which is sort of the way the world appears to human consciousness. So they're asking questions in object-oriented ontology about what the world looks like if we don't limit what can be known about the world to what can be known about human consciousness, essentially. That sort of that the world is full of objects, that objects aren't exhausted by human knowledge of what they are, and that they keep something in reserve and have their own effects and relations to the world that human experience doesn't quite capture. So it becomes a question of sort of then how we treat objects and how the way we treat objects both shapes our thought and shapes the composition of the world in general. So that's sort of the general thrust of what's going on with specular philosophy, or at least the idea of speculation. I love it as a response to this sort of deconstructionist postmodernist idea where it kind of leaves everything somewhat arbitrary and sort of empty of uh of meaning and or i don't know it just always seemed kind of sad to me the way you you the human consciousness ultimately reduced to something that was so unknowable that it was that you could almost posit something arbitrary in its place and it would be the same thing um but i i think th this approach uh, you gave me some uh, the first section of Whitehead to read to kind of prep for this and it uh, the uh, process and reality and it just was so which I don't know it was really eye opening to um, delve into something that takes as its beginning this idea of of things can be constructed and you can be they can be imaginary and then sort of interrogate them against uh, a backdrop of of uh, of sort of reality itself and see if if they actually hold true that may not be accurate but i'm going to kick it back to you no that's fairly accurate and i think the reason why i suggested the whitehead piece and why i always suggest the whitehead piece besides the fact that i research whitehead is that what he does in that introduction is very important i think in that he provides a response way even before we're actually dealing with deconstruction, postmodernism, and poststructuralism to this idea that we can either have dogmatic certainty or that everything is ultimately relativistic. Um, and the question that he poses is, given that this is the way that knowledge seems to function, that sort of what we codify in language isn't ultimately going to be fully representative of reality, what do we do then to construct knowledge? And he makes an interesting turn away from what we see in deconstruction, which is that everything is interpretation to say, no, that's true. Everything is interpretation, but interpretation happens within the world, such that any of these perspectives we have always contain abstractions and always contain concepts that give us a particular kind of access or a particular kind of feeling of the world, but they're no less objective because we sort of exist in a framework of mutually present perspectives that are interacting in such a way as to be the structure of reality. Um, the more radical way of putting this is that it's not even human interpretation that's central, right? Conceptual abstraction is ultimately just a higher case of us as particular animals that have the types of minds that we have being able to use language as a tool to codify the world. But a dog doesn't do that. 
but a dog still interprets its surroundings. It knows when another dog is mad at it because it can read its body language or it can hear the sound of its growl, and it has in it sort of, not even pre-programmed, but a learned understanding of what the world is like that ultimately gives it a frame of reference for the things that it'll encounter in the future. And I think seeing the world in those terms and recognizing that interpretation isn't just this conceptual process, it is sort of the process that we undergo, makes it a lot more interesting as a foundation for knowledge and thinking about reality. I, I love this stuff. It's absolutely mind-blowing. Um, do you think maybe you could break down kind of the the process one would go through to to sort of execute, uh, I mean, maybe within the sort of Whiteheadian framework of how you actually execute a speculation that would actually be valuable philosophically. Yeah, so the other useful thing about the introduction is he gives us some terms for thinking about systems, but what's interesting is he doesn't quite give you a methodology. He gives you some sort of systemic constraints or prerequisites that a system has to have, and then he just goes and he starts making his own system which is really interesting. But essentially, the things that you want to have in mind or keep in common is that one, empirical experience and rationality aren't distinct, right? That ultimately our concepts affect our actions, disposition, and function in the world, and these functions also reflect back on our concepts. So starting from this position that mind and world are both interacting, we see the world in terms of process. And that's the big thing that's been incorporated from Whitehead is this understanding that from this perspective, rather than thinking about the world in terms of concepts and objects, we think about the world as a completely structured whole. Um, the way that he raises this problem in particular that's in in particular that's really important is he refers to what he calls the bifurcation of nature and this is what it's called it's sort of a fallacy in thinking that he believes sort of characterizes most scientific thought in his period process and reality is presented i think in 28 and sort of the work that he wants to do and this is building on like i mentioned kant earlier also descartes that by having this idea that mind and world are split, you end up with nature or with an experience that ultimately doesn't correspond. There's either the world in the mind or the world outside. And when you make that distinction, the way that you understand the world is ultimately bracketed to one or the other. So if you're on the side of the material of the world is ultimately what affects and constructs the mind, you end up with reduction what i call reductionist explanations of how the physical ultimately controls the mental so for a common example like this is what happens when you get into arguments on like uh one of my professors hans joas always uses these sort of neuroscientific explanations of prayer where they can figure out sort of what the brain does while one prays and then how it affects us and his response, which I think is really good, is, well, that's all well and good, but what does that say about the experience of prayer, right? It doesn't actually let you know what's going on in the subjective consciousness of the person and how this affects their life. It simply gives you a neurological explanation of what's going on in their brain at the time. But for some people, this is an explanation of how prayer works and how it makes us ultimately feel pleasure that should delegitimize religion. Um, 
another good one is sort of these ideas of sort of genetic or physical determinism, right? That by knowing what my genetic makeup is, you not only know diseases or just general kind of physical traits that I'll have, but you can also determine aspects of my personality and sort of know what I can do in advance as though I'm already pre-programmed and anything that in my mind is actually subjective doesn't count. At risk of derailing us just slightly, it does seem like there may be the idea that with better tools that we could know the experience that the praying uh, person is going through or with better rendering of your genetic code, we could have a more deterministic outlook on your life. Um, I, I know there's an argument against that. Oh yeah, there is, but that's always, that's a good, that's a good one to make because that's been sort of one of the cores of the defense of philosophical determinism. And one of the ways I came to Whitehead is sort of trying to figure out ways to evade these objections because to a certain extent they might be right. But I think what changes in Whitehead that makes this so interesting is that because subjective experience has a role to play in the construction of reality, once you sort of concede that the world ultimately does also involve the mind and subjectivity of the individuals that inhabit reality, that then brings subjectivity to bear on these markers, right? So then that allows me to argue that just because I have a genetic predisposition towards maybe alcoholism, right, that there are still practices in place that rather than just conceding my life to this, I can also say that, well, then knowing that these are different activities that I can take, these are different perspectives that I need to view the world through to make sure that I don't fall into this trap, or if I decide to be an alcoholic, I can, right? But it at least gives you that sort of space for some type of creative activity. And somehow I've talked about Whitehead for probably about 10 minutes without even mentioning creativity, but that sort of becomes the crux of what speculative philosophy can do. It does seem like the, if I, you know, I think that's the whole point of like a program like 23andMe is that you know your this, whatever the potential deterministic outcome of your genetic code is, and then you make decisions accordingly. <laughs> so you're actually, you have this, if you did nothing, this would be a, a potential deterministic outcome. But now that I know it, it's, it's gotten fed back into my reality, and now I'm making different decisions based on that information. So that the determinism of this of the tool itself, by being exposed to the subject, becomes yet another thing. That's one of the principles of constructivism, which is sort of the French reception of Whitehead kind of uses his system for. Is it's a way of thinking about the fact that because facts are constructed, like even the discovery of genetic markers, that's done within a laboratory and you're looking for markers to look for certain things. That's not, what's the way to say this? It's not conducted without a view towards some form of a value. So like in the explanation I give, if I'm looking for this just as an explanation of what will happen to people in the future, and I'm seeing this as purely me reading their code to know how they function as though they were a machine, that's a value orientation towards my research, right? So that ultimately is going to categorize how these facts are used and how they're deployed in the world and how they function. What constructivism holds, I think, is really interesting is that, all right, so if we acknowledge that all of these things have a value element embedded in them, what are the ways in which we can explore these things with the value element as something 
that actually participates in the research? How do we acknowledge that this is present while we do it? And one of the interesting things is that then that means that your definition of objectivity goes away from this sort of I'm reading the data and I can look at the data and tell you what the facts are to understanding that the data and the facts are something that are produced by experiment, that the experiment can succeed or fail, and that whether or not it succeeds or fails matters for some reason in the life of the researcher or whoever the research is being conducted for. And once you see these things in those terms, science becomes less sort of the production of reality on paper and more of how do we explore reality around us in ways that have an effect on human life? And I think even embedding it in that way helps us avoid a lot of these sort of deterministic views of science. And I think involves us a lot more in sort of the production of these facts as kind of something that actually serves human purposes and improves human life. There's this cool ethical dimension that's kind of built in that I think makes it interesting. One of the points that, that, that Whitehead is making in this this little intro section was that facts and, and and I you could probably extend it to you know I think he talks about propositions and other things of this type need to be they they can only propositions and facts can only exist within a, a, a larger general context like an entire understanding of the universe in which they exist to to sort of have that broad application that I think a lot of that, that facts tend to carry. I mean, they tend to, it's, you know, they, 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 they carry a meaning beyond, uh, it's, as a simple statement, a fact isn't as, it's not as, you, you do, I think you know what I'm trying to say. I, I'm having trouble spitting it out. It's just, are you referring to the fact that, <laughs> the fact that, the notion that sort of the very setting out of a fact ultimately also points to something beyond itself, both in the sense that it only focuses on a particular aspect of a thing and might bracket other things to the outside, or that it also involves, or at least presupposes, the systematic context that kind of makes it real. Yeah, it can, a fact can can only exist within an understanding of of the universe, and so it may not be applicable as universally as it may. You know, it, it may appear at first that this that this fact is applicable in all cases, but the universe of, that it belongs to may not be. The, the sort of speculative universe it belongs to may not be well articulated or coherent enough to survive all those cases. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I I think that's one of the one of the things that's going to be exciting about doing this. I think this podcast in general, but especially the these topics is, you know, it's it is it's exciting how dumbfounded your brain can get after you try to digest a little bit of this stuff. It's just really exciting to just be that kind of like as intellectually worn out as if you'd just like gone mountain climbing. No, that's true. And that's actually one of the reasons I ended up reading Whitehead is because something about the presentation always gave me that and it always stuck with me. So it'd be like after you finish a jog, you're finally sort of exhausted and you sit down and you still have the endorphins kicking. 
it's that every time except the endorphins are also like so what are the problems i want to explore to see where this applies what are the ways that this can sort of affect the way that i think in these different areas and that's where i think that's ultimately i think what's at stake with speculation is this idea that by changing the way we construct and think about our context concepts by thinking of them in terms of the way in which the abstractions that we use affect our understanding of ourselves and our surroundings both on a scientific level and on an everyday level sort of it puts us in a position to start to interrogate these things more and ask questions about them and sort of be involved in an active process of evolving ourselves and evolving our relationship with the world around us because if you come at it from this sort of there are facts and the facts are the facts dogmatic kind of a certainty you don't evolve you don't change right that's one of the biggest critiques of religion especially catholicism is that because the dogma has to be changed over time and approved it never actually adjusts with society it never alters itself with the things we know so it's always stuck in this retrograde position so one of the things i'm actually trying to examine in my work is that Whitehead has this idea of civilization that he uses, I think, actually at the end of the Whitehead reading, I'll look up the passage, but also in this later book, um, Adventures of Ideas, that involves kind of creating civilized knowledge or creating a civilized universe. And what it seems that he has in mind is generating a world in which things can be held in order by knowledge. But that that knowledge, for the most part, sort of puts us in a position to progress as societies. And that's what civilization is, is sort of this gradual harmonization of the different perspectives that encounter the world to create something better. Um, he doesn't see this as kind of a deterministic goal, and, but instead sees dogmatism as essentially what leads to the decline of civilizations. That when you stop evolving for the conditions that surround you, you're ultimately falling into decadence and your empire will be destroyed, right? So it doesn't mean that you have to have this radical involvement of the novel, but you do have to be finding new things and solving new problems to even maintain your situation. So progress in the way that we normally use it towards like the best and the brightest is a possibility, but even just living in a world that allows us, that like doesn't progress in that way, but at least can sustain itself, can maintain itself, requires solving new problems and thinking about things in new ways. You know, it, does, it does seem like the dogmatism is, is so rigid and rigorous, it's almost like it becomes brittle and fragile and it cracks and it breaks and it takes us all down with it because it becomes the sort of general presupposition of of all of society. Maybe not reality, but society is built on top of this this sort of fragile, decaying structure. And if you include enough of mm -hmm. the novel or at least keep things fresh enough, they stay pliable and malleable and they adjust with with change and the sort of forward evolution of ideas and, and uh, things like that. And you are able to build on top of that without with a, a lessened risk of complete devastation when... Uh, that dogma finally crumbles. Yeah, it's yeah. 
if you thought about it as a house with the foundation being removed from the bottom for every fact that contradicted sort of a presupposition of a dogmatic thought, that would be the way to go, right? Eventually you move enough rocks and if it's on the side of a hill, it'll mudslide or it'll spin the sink into the dirt and you're screwed. Um, it's There's something you said that was really interesting in there that I'm still trying to kind of tease out, though, in the sense that sort of to make the metaphor of sort of how dogma functions work in a physical sense. It's less about the fragility and more about the capacity to still be involved, if that makes sense, or to make a difference is one of the phrases that's used a lot. That sort of anything that's real is something that makes a difference. That's something that affects something else. Because when we're using the word society, Whitehead uses this in a very particular sense that I think does some really, in it's the word to say this, novel and I think progressive things for our understanding of what it means to live in a society. Because when we think about the principles of a society, we think about them in terms of, say, like a constitution or a social contract, right? That's one of the lineages we have from the Enlightenment is that free people come together and they agree on principles and then they live together by these principles and they can either be set down in politics or they're culturally instantiated in ethics and popular morality. Um, but you can see already in positing the contract, you've posited this, you've created this document that then supersedes over all of the reactions, perhaps indeterminately into the future unless you have a system of revision but even that system of re revision allows you to still maintain the document that ultimately supervenes over everything and the notion of society that comes out of whitehead is that societies are ultimately relational ent entities that to make a difference to someone means to forge a bond with it in some way or to feel it in some way either positively or negatively and react to that. So he's thinking about it more on the level of the actual process of the interactions, right, rather than the principles that should govern it. So in philosophical terms, this means that sort of our understanding of systems and what principles do changes, right? We don't have science as the document that tells us how the world works, but we have categorizations of certain relationships that we should see, but it's absolutely possible that we won't see them given the fact that we aren't in laboratory conditions, right? And in thinking about society and not science, and this is something um, Bruno Latour does really well in his book, um, We Have Never Been Modern, is then the Constitution isn't a super regnant object that then governs the interactions of things. A Constitution is actually found in the relations that things form. That to sort of have a Constitution, it means allowing a wide variety of flexibility for different types of relations rather than dictating as your form of governance that then intensify these relations for all of the individuals involved that sort of make their experience better or richer in some way and that sort of then organize them in time with what their actions are so as things change as we see new varieties of people and new cultures of people because i mean this emerges right defining people by ethnicity at this point is not only intolerant in the sense of thinking about race as a construct, but the fact that the cultural differences between all these groups that you could define fairly strictly once they were isolated to their own areas of the world are sort of melting into one another. So 
thinking about speculation in this way already gets us thinking about, so then what are the ways we can start to conceive a social organization in a way that allows it to adjust to the changes that we see and sort of maintain its order, right, to keep things together, but to keep things together in such a way that in which they can stay together without being fascist, because being fascist will ultimately be toppled by the varieties of differences that emerge over time. It gets that fragility going. Um, that's well put. I think that that's... I, I've, I've been reading a book called uh, Mass Flourishing recently. It's, mm-hmm. it's all about how we've sort of lost... We've gone past an era of, of innovation. And in one of its claims in part does seem to be um, this idea that things get so rigid that you're not... that that novelty, instead of being this sort of nourishing newness to a system, is really just, it's almost like glitter on the, on the, on a sort of decaying corpse. It's mm-hmm. not, it's not breathing new life into it and re-energizing the whole system. What it's doing is just sort of, it's, it's providing like a sugar coating on the outside, um, and you're not truly in, ingesting and making account of these, these, uh, these, these, these new ideas that 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 they're not even in a position to challenge uh, the mm-hmm. underlying structure. I mean, Whitehead in in, in this in this intro, because this is what I'm most familiar with right now, makes a point about the endeavor philosophy in large part is to go out and look at these systems and find ways to adjust and tweak them so that we're not in a position to just simply abandon mm-hmm. uh, abandon the whole system as the premises become frailer and frailer and frailer from from too much dogmatic adherence. But finally you get to a point where it's like, well, we split the atom, and that seems to fundamentally undermine uh, a lot of these classical beliefs. <laughs> um, that the... The whole the the general system itself isn't robust enough to take in this new information without just collapsing underneath it. Yeah. No, it definitely can't take it on. And it totally takes us away from that social argument, which is wonderful. <laughs> yeah. No, that helps as a way of understanding, right? How these systems ultimately sit on top of each other is that eventually it is ornamentation on a decaying wall right that there's only so much you can do by seeing the world from this particular perspective so you do need to figure out means of innovation that allow you to sort of maintain the walls but then push outward to encompass a bit more and in encompassing a bit more you've opened up new avenues for actual novelty rather than sort of the repetition of the same being painted over with something that makes it prettier and I think that I mean when we were we've talked about the, the the title of this podcast the idea of let's just go to space I I, I think the the hope is that I mean it's it, some of what's implicit is that that we we that enough enough can ag- can agree to work together on a pliable and evolving uh, system of knowledge that allows us to take what we know, put it to use, and actually go to space. But at the same time, also go places we've never been. That's that, <laughs> that, that Whitehead makes a lot of these these travel and voyage and adventure references. And I think 
I think for me that, that that's that's the thing about knowledge that it is it is a voyage and an adventure and it's somewhere that 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 whether or truly I mean whether or not you believe in a system or subscribe to a system or are even willing to accept uh, its argument no matter how sound or coherent it is you would still benefit from the uh, the innovations and the more the more tangible byproducts of that sort of metaphysical uh, system or that could be completely off base no I think that works um, it's just not when you were you you dropped metaphysics <laughs> which no one had, which no one had mentioned yet but I think that gives us by dropping the term that's I think fills in the blank of sort of what holds these fields of knowledge together and what can kind of bring them together in a way that allows us to move forward is that ultimately most of our ways of thinking do whether we believe it or not presume a certain metaphysics and that's why Whitehead goes to the level of abstraction he uses in his book um, to make the argument and I think that metaphysics is then what separates the types of people you're talking about and their responses to going to space, right? There will be people who want to explore based on the fact that this is a general value that they have that sort of that drives the way that their existence functions versus people who don't. I mean, there are people who you can tell by the way that they function seem to be leaders and it's something about what they believe and how they're built that lets them do that. It can be changed, but it's something that's present. So... I think one of the reasons why this podcast is good and why I hope it gains a following is that by at least pursuing that idea, and this is where I think you're absolutely right, by pursuing the idea with enough people in a large enough space that this type of an innovation is possible, you might not even get to space, but you will develop a population of people who think in terms of innovation, who push themselves in, turn of in, in terms of innovation, that should ultimately provide a benefit for society, even for those who don't actually want to participate, because something in the general relations that form everything will evolve itself. Though so that sounds, I'm going to pause like you did, because that sounds a bit more like Hegel than I think I've ever wanted to sound. I apologize. <laughs> uh, Yeah, I, I, these these just these talks these 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 little moments of talking about society and sort of the of benefits and it, it's where it gets the, some of this hopefulness kind of. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the reasons I just love Whitehead in general. He's just such a hopeful person. Yeah. Um, he, he and he's very rigorous, and so I, I mean he gives himself every opportunity to be as discouraged as possible, but he. <laughs> He maintains, I don't think it's optimism. I think it's hopefulness. Yeah. Yeah, now, when he, so a good example to think about it is the Adventure of Ideas, the book I referenced earlier. He has a notion of peace, and peace isn't an absolute harmony. It's a relative balance between a certain amount of harmony and a certain amount of discord. So that sort of within even his kind of ethical understanding of these concepts, because he's using peace metaphysically, he doesn't, he's not trying to deploy it in an ethical context, but when he even speaks about the ethics of certain actions, that's in mind. That's sort of the evaluation of 
good or bad isn't based on whether or not this is something absolutely good or whether or not it's something that can destroy us. Goodness or badness is found in seeing and maintaining a kind of hopefulness by recognizing the fact that the world in itself is going to be composed of both of these sides. He's very sort of yin and yang about it. And it's just, once you recognize that and realize that the problems are things to be overcome and to continue to work on, that's what will allow you to move move forward, right? To be, dogma, to be dogmatic is to always be afraid of what lies outside of what you already know and to not be able to live outside of a framework that would let you explore something that might make things better. It's almost like that fear of any kind of change mm -hmm. forces you into a situation where you will have nothing but absolute change. Right. Yeah, and, and a really, certain fearlessness. Oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. As I say, and a fearlessness about small changes puts you in a position to regularly build upon prior art mm -hmm. and prior beliefs about things. And even if you encounter a situation where you have radical change that needs to put, take place or does take place, you'll still have less of a backslide than you will with a, t with a system that's gotten so far past its point of obsolescence that it just crumbles to dust. Yeah. No, when you're past your expiration date, that's when it's time to go. Um, and yeah, I think... A way to maybe I'm keep trying to w find ways of making this less optimistic. It's hard to fight the feeling though, but it's it's generally accepting the idea that yeah, um, ultimately survival requires recognizing the fact not even that you have to take a risk, but everything that you are always doing is sort of risky. So it requires a certain amount of hopefulness or courage to face up to that. Essentially, like there is a risk that at any point in time when I go to sleep I don't wake up. For some reason that if somebody does an autopsy, they might not even be able to tell me what killed me. But that risk is always present. It's risky every time I cross a street, even if I don't see a car, that a car might come out. It's risky every time you put forth a hypothesis and you do an experiment that he has to confirm the hypothesis, right? We talk about scientific experiments that fail or that create accidents that lead to something, but we don't talk about all the ones that never actually lead anywhere except we can't go in that direction. So it's, I think thinking about risk in all of these areas of our perspective on reality ultimately puts us in a position to sort of even work on cultivating that type of an ability, of seeing whether or not you're a person who's able to reach outside of what you've already experienced towards something new, or if you'll simply not accept that risk and sort of turtle up and go along that way. And I mean, both people will ultimately live, but it still seems to make the argument for pushing forward. Yeah, the word that keeps popping into my head is stewardship. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it does seem like if, if instead of exerting power to keep things the same exerting that power as a form of subtle influence you would you would you'd be less likely to put the, the, the system in a position to break 
or or become obsolete you're just if you're just subtly leading it I, I was thinking i guess i was sort of looking at i was looking at the window at some of our beautiful trees up here in oregon and all i could think was you know it, it, if you put your blinders on and just pretended like there's you know if there was a disease that was taking out all these trees and you just said well no there isn't you'd eventually wake up and realize there were no mm -hmm. trees but if you went through and you cut down the few trees that are diseased you actually would stand a chance of keeping more of them in the end so that those little just little steps that acknowledge changes without going to the extreme lengths of saying well we all need to adopt a single tree and make sure none of them get sick it's like well that's as ridiculous as ignoring the fact that it's there but these these subtle like in between <laughs> rows roads I think that's one aspect of it, but then I think the other aspect is being being fearless about failure, and even being fearless about mm -hmm. things that lead to these unknowable outcomes. These 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 outcomes where it's it it's obvious that whatever you attempted will not work. It didn't per se fail. It just does suggest that there is. An impossibility. I, I think time travel experiments, like as, as you dig into what mm -hmm. it would mean to go forward in time, does start to. It it sort of starts to set up this impossibility barrier. Uh, I guess I guess it's the event horizon. Um, one day we'll have a physicist <laughs> on here. Um, but there's something you cannot go past because it is so. It's actually literally outside reality, and um, but by the same token, I think that's where you know create creativity in the common usage you know really comes in because you can imagine and invent what mm -hmm. it might be like to travel past it. So I don't know. I mean, where you, you may technically not be able to go forward in time, one could make up at least fiction about it. I don't know if we're completely cut off mm -hmm. from all possibilities. At least the imagining of them. They, they does seem to be a quite an open realm of imagination, but right, because that's so. Because what to build off this idea of like the time travel example, like presuming that it is even an impossibility, the idea that it was possible was a possibility, and it's something that we consider means that we can write fiction and we can speculate about what the future would be like in really robust ways that will ultimately reflect back on our understanding of the present and change things that would be occurring now, right? So you can't actually try and travel, but even being able to do it in a conceptual space and communicate that with other people sort of gives you that ability. It's just that you're not dealing with the actual future and you're dealing with a possible future. Which, I mean, if time travel is impossible, then that means that the future is always simply a possibility. And we've worked on one of our best ways of accessing that and kind of helping to propel ourselves forward. That's absolutely right. In fact, it might be a benefit to us to find out that it isn't something we can physically traverse to. Because it means more of us can go at the same time. <laughs> right. Hey, I mean, more if we optimism. do it right, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I know. Well, I, this has been awesome. I mean, we're coming close to uh, 
to the end of our time. But did you? Is there anything you want to add by uh, by way of conclusion or anything? No, I think this is a pretty good start to the show, and I think we've come up with at least three different positive arguments for why we should go ahead and go to space. That's sufficient. I absolutely. I it it helps erstwhile innovation. It it probably helps us participate and achieve more of that Whiteheadian peace. And uh, I think all in all, it's just plain fun. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I I. I Everybody that's heard this one, I really appreciate it. I, I suspect going forward, um, I will continue to have my mind blown. Um, but I think this was great. Thanks so much, Mike. Oh, cool. Thank you. And now, the coda. So we moved, we moved a bit far from this idea of speculation that we started with in the beginning and mostly from the discussion of philosophy. But I think what comes out of the discussion, especially this last point on time travel, is we've sort of given a concrete case about how speculating about possibilities and thinking about the future makes the present matter to us in a different way. It changes the way that we see the things around us and puts us in a position to sort of alter that experience and to sort of make the present different. It drives us to innovate, right? So when people watch something like Star Trek, you end up with the seed of the idea that leads to the cell phone. So with this idea of going to space in mind, I think that helps us categorize or characterize the podcast very well. It's sort of by taking these speculative flights and thinking about problems in a new way, we're hopefully pushing things a little bit forward to kind of keep us jamming, keep us thinking, and to make things better if we do it right. That's awesome. That's awesome. Cool.